John chapter 14. This has been uh, an unbelievable passage of Scripture. I don't know if you have needed this chapter, but I have needed this chapter as I've studied and, and tried to prepare and then try to present to you the truths that are here. I want to give you just a little bit of an overview, and, and we'll hop to the end of the chapter today. Uh, you find that Jesus is in his upper room with his disciples. He's just washed their feet. He's announced that Peter's going to deny and Judas is going to betray. Judas has left. He's begun to teach them about love. He's begun to teach them uh, about what's going to happen. And the whole uh, chapter 14 really is, guys, I'm going away. You're not going to come with me right now, but you will later. But guys, I want to help your hearts. I don't want you to be troubled. I want you to know Hey, I'm going to the Father's house, I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you can come too. The only way is is through me, Jesus, but you can come to the Father through me, and I will give you relationship with God. I will give you access to commune with Him and to powerfully pray to Him, and I actually, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and be alongside you, and He's going to help, and He walks through all these gifts, and now He's going to give them yet another just kind of parting gift before they actually walk out of this room into the night and start to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where there Jesus will pray, and and there uh, Judas and the mob will come to arrest him. So here we are, the end of John 14. Look at verse number 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now let's hit the pause button for a moment. What he's saying is, guys, if you had my perspective, you'd be glad. You don't. But if you did, you would be glad. I told you already, I'm telling you again, I'm going to the Father. Then he says, the Father is greater than I. What what does he mean there? Does this mean that Jesus is going against what he's been teaching for 14 chapters now, that he's not God? We've seen over and over and over again that Jesus has made these astounding claims to deity. Uh, No, in fact, it goes perfectly in hand with what Jesus has been saying for 14 chapters now. On the one hand, he's been claiming unequivocally that he's God in the flesh. On the other hand, he has said that he has willingly become subordinate to the Father's will, that he has become subject to the Father's will, that he is obeying the Father's commands. And so he's been saying both. Now this phrase leans into the, the latter, the second part of this more. It's very similar to what he said in chapter 13, verse 16. That the servant, or the servant's not greater than his master, and the one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. So he's saying, guys, I'm going back to the one who sent me. Uh, this does not mean, you know, he's God and I'm not. But it does mean that, that he's calling the shots and I'm following his plans. You'll see this really worked out in verse 31 where Jesus will say in just a few moments, Hey, I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Meaning that, that I have, I've willingly put myself in, in subjection here. So it would be, give you an illustration just to help you with this. You know, if I said President Trump is greater than I... What, what would I mean by that? No one would think, you know, President Trump's more of a human than I am. No one would think President Trump is, is ontologically superior, that he's a different category of being. No, you would think maybe he's greater in wealth, maybe he's greater in influence, maybe he's greater in authority. Uh, but this is what Jesus is saying, that actually the Father's calling the shots and I'm obeying his commands. Verse number 29, And now have I told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. So guys, this is to reinforce your faith. Verse 30, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, 
For the prince of this world, a reference to Satan, cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. What he's saying here is, guys, I'm about to go into focus mode. We're not going to talk a lot. Satan's coming after me, but he has nothing in me. That was a, a, a idiom of the day, just a phrase that they would use, which means he has no claim on me. He has nothing over me. He has nothing to hang over my head. You and I would struggle to say that because we have skeletons in our closet. We have things we're not proud of. We have things that could be maybe hung over our head. Uh, but here is Jesus saying, Satan's coming after me, but he has nothing to hang over my head. This is obedience to the command of the Father. So he's wanting to make sure that they know up front, guys, this is not Satan foiling the plan. This is the Son working out the plan. We're on mission here. We're, we're on plan here. And he says in verse 29, I'm telling you this now because you're going to be busted up. This is going to mess with you. But eventually you'll look back and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what he said. That's what he meant. That's, we knew this was going to happen. And then your faith, then your belief will be reinforced because of all this. So that's the teaching. What does this mean for us? I think that the overall sense of this passage, and we'll explain it as we go through it, is, is really wrapped under one word, and that's the word peace. Here you have just about everything you need to know about peace. You find that Christ gives peace. You find that his peace is qualitatively different than the peace that the world could give or any other peace. And you find that Christ's peace is the antidote to the internal chaos and the fear that oftentimes grips us. And I want to work through this passage backwards. I want to work through it in this sequence. Let's look at the attributes of peace. Let's look at the counterfeits to peace. And then let's look at the source of peace. So let us start with the attributes of peace. Jesus says, I'm giving you my peace. Therefore, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What is he saying? He's saying that my peace is the antidote to the internal chaos and to the fear that is sometimes in your life. I want you to have peace that secures you in the midst of trouble. I want you to have peace that dissolves fear. No more fear of abandonment. No more fear of I don't matter, my life is purposeless. No more fear of death itself. I want to throw a great river of peace like a moat around the citadel of your soul. I want you to just be encompassed by and surround, surrounded by peace. Paul would write in Philippians 4 about this peace, that the peace of God passes all understanding and it shall keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He says this peace actually transcends understanding. It actually is beyond human comprehension. And this is something that keeps or guards our hearts. The, the picture there is almost of, of a bouncer called peace at the door of your heart. And when chaos comes with his friend worry and then his buddy, you know, fears around the corner and says, can we come in? Bouncer peace says, no, you ain't on the list. Get out of here. He's saying there's a peace that can possess you. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that. And this is extremely in line. Forgive me while I get some water. This is extremely in line with what the scriptures teach us over and over and over again. That as you draw near to God and come into the presence of God and relationship with God, peace enters in and fear goes away. 
But as you get away from God, peace goes away and fear enters in. I'm not going to take you on a survey of the Bible, but you see this all through the scriptures. Right in the beginning, Adam and Eve, who have peace with God, sin and mess up. Then all of a sudden, here's God again saying, Adam, and Adam don't want to answer. Why? Because he's so afraid. He's scared. He's, he's moved away from God, and there's less peace and more fear inside of his heart and inside of his life. What do the angels tell the shepherd when they come to announce the birth of Jesus? Fear not, peace on earth. Look, God is coming, and that should mean fear is going away and peace is coming in. What do the disciples experience when they're sailing on the Sea of Galilee, and here comes Jesus on the water? As Jesus gets closer to them, he tells them, guys, it's I, be not afraid. We saw in John 12, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and he told them that the children and the daughter of Zion, fear not. Behold, thy king cometh. Here I come. And so the fear should be dispelled and go away. After Jesus' crucifixion, he's going to show up to his disciples who are scared witless. I mean, they, they are just absolutely like little rabbits in, in these rooms. And he's going to show up and he is going to introduce himself. And his first word is going to be peace. Peace, guys. Over and over again. You see that as... As you get closer to the Lord, fears out, peace is in. So this would make sense to us that when I'm in alignment with God, when I have a relationship with him, I should have peace, not fear. But the biggest thing that I considered as I kind of wrestled with this text over the past week and a half is what does Jesus mean when he talks about these counterfeits of peace? He says, I'm going to give you peace, but not as the world gives. So certainly it means that the world is trying to give peace, But how are they trying to get peace? What peace are they offering us? How is that less substantial than the peace that Jesus offers to to us? How is the peace of Jesus qualitatively different than the peace that the world would give? I think there's kind of a Christianized version of this, and then I think there's a very secular version of this. The Christianized version of this, the counterfeit of peace, is that peace means you'll have no sorrow. You'll have no trouble. Everything will be good. Circumstantial bliss. No tough times. Listen, the Bible never promises you that. It actually assumes and asserts the opposite. That you will have persecution. That people won't always like you. That you'll begin to love your neighbor and care for your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? That'll mean mess and that'll mean inconvenience. There is nowhere in Scripture, I mean, it's a new invention for us to say that life with Jesus means prosperity and great circumstances and unshakable health and everything you touch turns to gold because you have the Midas touch and every aspect of your life flourishes and everything goes well. If, if that's the test for peace, then Jesus fails the test. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That, that's not real. That, that's absolutely not real. I like the illustration of some painters that were commissioned with the task of painting peace, but they had to use water to do it. So one painter decided that he would paint this, this just beautiful pond. It had some lilies on it. It was real tranquil. Sun was out shining, just this, this beautiful calm pond. The next painter painted this bucket, and in the bucket was, was some water, and it was absolutely standstill, so much so that it showed the reflection of a little boy looking, staring down into the water of that bucket. But then the third painter painted this, this waterfall, this waterfall cascading, and then it went into these white water rapids. It was turbulent. It was chaotic. And they said, man, like, 
bro, did you miss the memo? Like, you're supposed to be painting peace here, not, you know, chaos. And he said, no, 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 look behind the waterfall. And there, there was this little bird sitting there, calm, tranquil. And he said, that's peace. It's not the absence of, of chaos or problem or trouble. That's, that's in life. It's actually the presence of an internal calm while that is around us. He understood something. He understood that peace was not the absence of problems. It wasn't life without a hitch. That's not what it was. Peace was not subtracting your problems, but adding power to help you meet those problems head on and to have a sense of calm as you go through them. So there's a Christianized version of this that frankly is, is just really misplaced, but there's also a secular version of this. The world talks a lot about peace. People trying to find peace, peace in the city, peace in the community, peace for the nation, peace for the family, peace in our relationships, peace for the world. People talk about trying to find peace and quiet, trying to make peace, law enforcement trying to keep the peace. Global arbitrators trying to establish peace all until we rest in peace. People talk a lot about that. The Durants in their history said that by their calculations, out of 3,500 years of, of world history that they could calculate, there were less than 300 years that could be called peaceful in the world. You added up all the, all the little years together, less than 300. Historians have defined that, those little time frames as the lull in battle where everyone stopped to reload. There was peace for a second and they talked of peace, but they were preparing for war and it started right back up again. What's the world's peace based on? I think this is the biggest difference between the world's peace and what Christ is offering. The world's peace, in my estimation, is based on circumstances. You can have peace today because someone really attractive asked you out. You got a raise, you got a promotion, the doctor gave you a clean bill of health, whatever it is. You know what the problem with basing your peace on that is? Your circumstances change. They're like bubbles on the water. Eventually they're going to burst. Those circumstances will not they will not remain static, even the most durable ones. I'm talking about good things that do give us a measure of peace, a good marriage. That can be long-lasting. That can add a lot of peace. But you know, deep down inside, you know this is going to last for a while, but it's temporary. I love great marriages. I, I hope that I have one that I, can, that I can model, and we're almost 10 years in. I love that. But you know deep down that that, that, is, that is temporary. Haven't we seen this with people that, you know, seem like they had peace in their life, but then their career started to collapse, and all of a sudden life started to crumble as well? Seemed like they had peace, but then the marriage goes into a tailspin. And so now I feel like I can't even get out of bed. You know, life seems worthless. So things seem peaceful until the kids went astray and now they're disappointing me. Uh, now, now they're not regarding me as highly as they should. Now they're not giving me, me as much time as I think they should. And, and it threatens someone to ruin them to the core. We've seen people that were great with the clean bill of health, but as soon as the health started to fail, they became sour, they became angry, they became shake your fist at heaven. Why God would you do this to me? What's happening there? The world's version of peace. Peace that's based on circumstances. 
I watched a movie a few years back on uh, P.T. Barnum, the circus ringmaster and the entrepreneur. Some of you may have seen it called The Greatest Showman. There's this moment in the movie where P.T. realizes he's been chasing fame and he's been chasing money and he's been chasing all the wrong things. And he kind of comes back to his senses. And he, and he says, they sing this, it's a musical, they sing, for years and years I chased their cheers at the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and I see you here, and he sees the people that he was doing this for, the relationships, he says, I remember who all this was for. On one hand, I wanted to kind of commend the plot of the movie for saying, hey, great, you realize that fame and money and all that, it's not what it's about, it's not going to give you peace, and you kind of upgraded, you know, you migrated over to, to relationships. But on the other hand, I wanted to jump in the movie and just shake Hugh Jackman, who was playing this character, and say, all you did was migrate from these circumstances to those circumstances, bro. Like, you went from fame and, fame and money to just people, and what are you going to do when they're laying in a casket? Dude, pastor, that's morbid. That's real. Like, that's real. That's life. You can't base your peace on that. Even the good stuff, the relationships that we prioritize, you, the, that goalie will let a few slip by. Fear will still creep in. Chaos will still creep in. You can't do that. The best versions of circumstantial peace don't hold up. They can't carry the freight of your life. They can't. In contrast to that, the Christian version of peace is not based on circumstances. It's based on not just something, but someone who is unchanging. How many of you, raise of hands, like chess? We have any chess masters in the room? People like chess? Okay. Few of you. Few of you. What, what do you, if you're a chess enthusiast, you know this. What's the point of chess? The point of chess is to put the other person in checkmate. How do you do that? You position all the pieces on your side under your control in such a way to where it doesn't matter what the other guy does. You win every time, no matter what they do. Checkmate. I mentioned that to you because I'm going to read you two verses from Psalm. And what the psalmist will say here is checkmate fear. He's going to say fear, checkmate. Watch this. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. That's, that's an unchanging factor there. God. Therefore, will not we fear. Therefore, there's no fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. I'm going to base my life on God. Therefore, I'm not going to fear. Checkmate. And, and no matter what happens circumstantially, what does he mean? The earth be removed, the mountains be cast into the sea. If you didn't know, if the earth is removed and the mountains are cast into the sea, that will change all of your circumstances, okay? But those, those are really big circumstantial changes. That's going to mess with everything. What the psalmist is trying to communicate in a poetic way is saying, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what comes my way. You could remove all of this. You could put that, that mountain in the ocean. It does not matter. My peace will remain. I will not have fear. I, I will have joy. I will have a, an inner tranquility. I will have confidence. When the, when the world is rolled up as the stage set that we know it to be, I'm still going to have peace. There, there's buoyancy of the soul. There's something that is there that is not there outside of God. It's not based on circumstances anymore. 
The circumstances can come and go, but peace can remain. So, okay, pastor, I want that. I, I would love to have that peace in my life. How do I get it? How do I get this fear-killing peace into my life? It's what the whole really text here is about, 27 through 31. Jesus said, I leave it with you. Guys, I'm going to the Father. It's a good thing. You'll understand one day. Satan's coming right now, but he doesn't have anything on me. This isn't about Satan's plan. This is about the Father's plan, and I'm obeying that plan. What is Jesus saying? What is he talking about? He's talking about the cross. The whole conversation is about the cross. This is happening. I'm going to the Father. I leave it. In many ways, this is his last will and testament. That I am going to die, but I'm going to leave you with this. We, we know that the only way that you get what someone will leave in a will is if the testator dies. And he's telling them, guys, this is happening. Here's what this means. You have to understand that the peace of Jesus is only made available to you because he died for you. His peace is wrapped up in his death. And if you don't understand that, you'll never get it. You, you will miss the source of peace. And Jesus said this, and maybe this is what he was referencing. We said the world's peace. He said this during the Pax Romana. He said this during the, the Roman peace. It was this really weird 200-year span of time where the Romans had so dominated everybody that no one would, would you know, uh, play peekaboo and put their head up because they'd just be squashed back down. So it was essentially peaceful for 200 years. And their peace was, was mitigated by a brutal sword. Try, try to mess with us and get crushed. And many of the Jews thought that the Messiah would come with an even more victorious sword, with an even more brutal sword. And that's what the Messiah would usher in. But, but Jesus' peace doesn't come from someone holding a sword. It comes from someone who's pierced by a sword. Someone who lays it down. Someone who gives his life. It's, what am I trying to say? It's all wrapped up in the gospel and the good news that Jesus died for us, was buried, and rose again. That's the only way to believe that and to know that, to have that, to have this peace in your life. You can't pull this apart from Jesus. You can take an Oreo cookie and you can twist one of the Oreos away from the cream, but you ain't twisting Jesus away from peace. Amen. Real peace, you can't. It's impossible to. And Jesus, this is why Jesus can say, this is my peace. He doesn't say, I leave you a peace, uh, you know, the peace. He says, my peace I give to you. And isn't he modeling it? He's here knowing for sure I'm about to die. And in many ways, he is burdened and hurt by the fact that Judas would leave. He's going to pray this, this prayer and sweat, great drops of blood, like this is going to happen. But here he is in the midst of all this, loving his disciples, washing their feet, teaching them, pouring into them. He has them in mind. How? Peace. He says, that transcendent peace I want to give to you. I want to leave you with it. Maybe the best illustration that I heard of this was from a pastor, I don't remember when I heard it. But he said, think of it this way. Think of a little child, maybe three years old, that enters into Macy's for the first time holding mom's hand. 
And the little child gets in the doors and says, Mom, let go. I'll find my own way around. And Mom says, oh, no, no, hon. You know, this, this, is, this is vast and endless for you. You can't handle this. You, you, need to, you need to stay with me. Don't be silly. So the child holds on to the hand but says deep down inside, I'll show you. First chance I get, I'm, I'm off. I'm out of here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, find some stuff. So first chance she gets, certainly she, she goes. And she says to herself, I'm free, you know. I'll show her. I saw an ice cream shop out there in the mall. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll go find that ice cream shop. I'll, I'll, I'll get me some ice cream. She begins to wander. Wait, I, I thought it was there. Well, maybe it's over here. Wait, it's not there? Wait, it's, oh, no. I'm lost. I'm scared. Mommy, help, right? But she says to herself, and she buckles down, No. I'm not going to go try to find mom, ask people for mom. I'll just find someone else to ask for help. Mom, I'll go back to mom. I told you so. That's what she'll say to me. So I'll find someone else. So I, the stranger's coming. I'll ask them for help. What if they're a kidnapper? What if they're, what if they're trying to kidnap me right now? Oh, no. I'm, help. I'm scared. Mom. The elder said, in many ways, that is, that is us. That our condition apart from God is a child walking around trying to find our way without recognizing that we're built to hold God's hand in this universe. We're not made to find our way on our own. And when we think that we are, we're far too small for the position that we've taken. And when we move away from him and we let go of his hand and we, we decide that I can figure this out on my own and I can do this all by myself, then all of a sudden the spirit of fear comes in. The peace goes away, and all of a sudden, we have to tell ourselves, I was a fool to think that I could do this on my own. I need to return. Father, would you help me? I need, I need you. Augustine maybe said it best. He said, God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. He didn't say peace there, but that's what he's getting at. You need the Father to have peace. We're going to end this morning. I'm going to take three minutes. I'm going to walk you through uh, eight verses in Romans 8. I want you to go to Romans 8. It's in your outline. Or you can turn there in your Bible on your phone. I want to give you an example of this in the Scriptures. At least what I think is on a page in black and white, someone working out the peace of God. Like you see it pouring out of them. Romans 8. I'm not going to give you a survey of the book of Romans, but it's highly theological. Paul has just walked through our state that we are corrupt and that we are wrong and that we are at odds with God. And we cannot fix that ourselves, but Jesus came to fix that for us and to offer his life and to pay for our sins and to give us eternal life. And that this was all a part of the grand redemptive plan of God. And Paul is, is just rehearsing these things and talking about these things. And he gets to the end of chapter 8 in verse number 31. And, and I feel like he just explodes here with this overwhelming lack of chaos and lack of fear and a peace from God because he has reminded himself of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is, Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, I don't have the oomph in my voice today to communicate what this is really saying, but I think he's screaming at the top of his lungs, God's on my team. Like he's with me. Like God is with me. Who's going to be against me? What does it matter? I win. God is for us. Verse 32, 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give us uh, all things? You know what he's saying? You think God's holding back on you? He, he offered his son. Jesus came and died. Do you think there's more than that? There's something more valuable than that? There's a hidden treasure somewhere in heaven that's going to go over and above and beyond that? If he's willing to give you that, you don't think he's willing to give you something else? He's not holding back. He'll give to you freely. Here, he's, here he goes, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Really what Paul is saying is almost what Jesus said in John 14, that Satan got nothing on me. What he's saying is, I know I was a scoundrel. I know I did wrong, but God justified me. So who's going to put something on my account? Who's, who's going to hold something over my head? Who's going to pull those skeletons out of the closet? Who's, who's going to hold that against me? No, it's gone. It's done. God justified me. He that condemneth, or who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. What is he saying? I got Jesus on my side. You ain't going to condemn me. You're not trumping the word of Jesus. You, you don't got more weight than he got. No way. Verse number 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. What did he just do in verse 35 and 36? He just gave you a cocktail of badness. Think about your life circumstances. Tell me, do they sound like this? Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and the sword. Stab, die. We probably don't got it that bad. I don't know what your circumstances are, but I dare say you'd rather have yours than that verse. And Paul says, bring it. No matter. We were told that we were going to be slaughtered as sheep. It doesn't matter. You think he has peace? You think there's a lack of fear in his life? You think there's a lack of chaos in his life? Circumstantially, no way. Circumstances were abysmal. We know that Paul was persecuted and stoned and shipwrecked and hungry and thrown in prison and eventually killed. But he says, that's not what my peace is riding on. It's not on my circumstances. Verse 37, nah, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What's he saying? Am I going to get down about this? This is going to take away my peace? No way. Verse 38, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, uh, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have something that is not circumstantial, that's not fickle, it's not changing, it's not going away. It's rock solid, the love of Jesus. Nothing's going to separate us from that. I think he's just trying to like list whatever he could. You can add on there modern stuff if you want, you know. None of this is going to do it, nor is technology or robots or zombies or whatever it is. None of it's going to separate us. This is sure. I dare say this guy is living out what Jesus said in John 14. I'm going, but I'm leaving you peace. It's not, it's not the world's peace. It doesn't base on your circumstances. Understand what's happening here, guys. See the plan. See what's happening. This is because of me. I'm dying to, to, to bring about this peace for you. So today, I have to ask you first, do you know Jesus? Because without him, you're not getting this peace. 
It's the only way it comes, through him. If you do know him, how are the internal waters? Calm? Steady? Circumstances got you shook up. Got you worried and upset and, and all messed up inside. It's not supposed to be that way. You may be the child that let go of mom's hand in the store and took a position way too large for yourself. And now you think you can do it all on your own. And I dare say if you've done that, a spirit of fear has entered in. So the peace has gone away. Run back to dad. Amen. Take his hand again. He'll give you the peace that you so desperately want and need.